Hi there, this is Jeff Bridges. I'm the national spokesperson for Share Our Strengths No Kid Hungry campaign, and I'm inviting you to join me in celebrating our podcast on its one-year anniversary. Every week, we have a conversation with people who are changing the world. The host of Add Passion and Stir is Share Our Strengths founder, Bill Shore. Billy and I have worked closely together for nearly a decade now, connecting hungry kids with the food they need to grow, learn, and thrive. I especially dig that the podcast features so many young people who are having profound impacts with new ideas to help children, college students, and veterans. These difference makers are creating and implementing innovative solutions to transform our food system into one that is less wasteful, more nutritious, and more sustainable. At a time when there is so much bad news and division, it's great to hear new voices talking about how Americans can come together around ideas that work. Each of us has a strength to share. Each of us has a gift or a talent through which we can give back. And every episode of Add Passion and Stir is about how to do just that. Take the issue of childhood hunger in America. Too many of our kids live in poverty and struggle with hunger, but it is one of our most solvable problems. Add Passion and Stir puts a spotlight on the teachers, doctors, chefs, and advocates who have worked together to add 3 million kids to the school breakfast program, which has led to better test scores and more educational achievement. On Add Passion and Stir, you can listen in as thought leaders and advocates discuss and debate innovative new strategies about the one issue that unites all of us, food. Make Add Passion and Stir a regular part of your week, whether on your commute, at the gym, or taking a walk in the park. Go to adpassionandstir.com to subscribe and learn how you can best share your strength. Hi, I'm Billy Shore. This is Add Passion and Stir. We are in New York today with two guests who, if you care about food, you will care about what they both have to say. They're kind of almost too young to be legends, both of them, but they are kind of legends if you're somebody like me who's been around the food world for the last 25 years. Here with Mitchell Davis, who's the executive vice president of the James Beard Foundation, absolutely extraordinary institution uh, that just connects to everything we care about in terms of food. And you, Mitchell, are also the author of a number of books, uh, including The Mensch Chef um, and Kitchen um, uh, kitchen sense. So yes. we're thrilled to have you here. I'm so excited to be here. It's really an honor. And also a longtime friend of mine, friend of Share Our Strength, uh, Chef Michael Anthony, uh, the chef and partner at Gramercy Tavern, also at Untitled uh, at the Whitney. Um, and just a, uh, in addition to being an extraordinary chef and extraordinary philanthropist who's made an enormous difference for Share Our Strength's anti-hunger work. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Good to see you. Um, now, the two of you know each other. You've probably known each other longer than I've known either one of you. Uh, how, how far do you go back? How did that start? That is a good question. I mean, um, I moved to New York City in 1995, and um, I had to be within the first few years that we crossed yeah, paths, I, I would imagine. So. Yeah. I, I've been with the Beard Foundation for 24 years and had moved here just a few years before that. So, And I guess if you're a great chef, you're going to cross paths with the Beard Foundation, right? 
Uh, we hope so. <laughs> I mean, the, the challenge is there are so many great chefs these days coming all over the place. I was just saying to someone yesterday, it's gotten so hard to keep up in such a wonderful way. But you feel like you're constantly treading to make sure that you make all the connections and meet all the people who are doing interesting things every in every corner of this country. Well, the James Beard uh, Foundation, you know, continues to be at the cutting edge of the industry, and and it has maintained this allure, the the dream of chefs from around the country to come to the city and to get to you know show their skills and to uh, speak to an audience here in New York City. It's it certainly was uh, uh, one of my early memories of uh, being here uh, in New York. And in the years that have followed, um, you know, Mitchell has driven the initiatives that continue to, you know, uh, provoke interesting questions and establish new programs and really keep the James Beard Foundation at the cutting edge of our industry. Mitchell, I feel like uh, a lot of people, particularly young people, share strength. We have a staff of a couple hundred really young people. Uh, they all know the James Beard Foundation. They probably don't know much about James Beard. Can we start with you just saying a word about the man and how it's infused your your, your own work and your own personal commitment to this? Sure. We, we just realized, actually, that James Beard died 32 years ago, and most chefs are younger than that, or m many cooks are younger than that and don't w w are likely unaware of anything but the James Beard Foundation. So I appreciate the question, um, and thank you, Michael, for the kind words. Um, uh, Beard was, as early as 1957, the New York Times called him the Dean of American Cookery. We have sort of transformed that into the father of American cuisine, a more contemporary-sounding uh, phrase, but also I think well-deserved as someone who um, started writing, thinking about food, cooking, writing about it, and all the other things that he did over the course of his life from when he moved to New York in the early 30s and then died here in 1985. But someone who was constantly exposing people to the literally the pleasures of the table, um, the joys of the market, the regionality of American food, and the great cuisines of the world, not just French, but he was an um, ardent uh, lover of Jap Chinese food. And and I, I think, although he would never have known this at the time, he really was laying the groundwork for this moment that chefs like Mike and um, younger generations uh, uh, have brought us into where America is a as much a culinary... Uh, uh, cultivator. Uh, I, I don't want to say a, a great culinary. Um, it is a great culinary destination. I don't want to say that we're a great culinary tradition. I think we're still forming our traditions, but um, but I think we have become a place uh, uh, leaders in the world of of a certain type of approach to cooking, to chefs, to eating, to to uh, celebrating food. And I think Beard was really behind that in a tremendous way. And. You've been there for 20 years? 24 Mitchell, years. 24 years, so almost from the beginning. Yeah, so, I joined so. in 93. It was founded in uh, 86, although we did our first events in 87, and the first Beard Awards were given in 91. So very much at the beginning. Uh, but uh, not just has there been an evolution in the organization, but there's been this tremendous evolution in the country. And to Mike's earlier point, we have been trying to keep up. I don't know that we're at the cutting edge, but we're constantly treading to get there, jogging to get there, uh, to really be as useful as we can be to what we see as our mission of shaping America's food culture, helping to shape it in a way that includes the values that we know the chefs 
um, the diners, the, the mindful citizens of our country uh, would like it to be, whether it's about sustainability, whether it's about gastronomy and deliciousness or traditions and culture, or um, even some of the more difficult but no less important issues of equity and access and hunger, which is why we're here today. So I want to come back to um, some of those values, but first I want to also know what you were doing before you went to the James Beard Foundation and how you decided to make the move. Because at the time you made it, it wasn't, it probably wasn't as a sure thing as it looks today, right? It wasn't the 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 you know the robust institution that it is today. It was a fledgling. Uh, I- yeah, that's true. Although at the time, you know, when you're young, I was an editor of a magazine that only chefs ever knew about called um, um, Art Culinaire, which was a hardcover quarterly magazine. It was my first job out of college. I'd cooked in France uh, for a year and in Italy for a year and came back and started writing for them, actually started translating recipes from French and became the first editor. Um, and it was a celebration of food, much aligned in many ways with the Beard Foundation, um, trying to showcase what great chefs in the United States and at Art Culinaire's sake around the world were doing. Um, and I used to volunteer in the kitchen uh, because that's where I was comfortable and that's where you could meet the people we were writing about or going to visit. And at a certain transition point, actually it was the starting of um, the Food Network in 1993. Uh, Dory Greenspan was doing the writing at the Beard House. She wanted uh, an excuse to to leave a little bit. Uh, I was her excuse and she went to work, started writing for the fledgling Food Network. Um, another amazing moment in time, I think, because it has had as much an impact on food in America as we have, as any of us have. So, Chef Mike Anthony, um, Gramercy Tavern is a destination restaurant. I mean, people come from all over the world to New York for a lot of reasons, but one of them now is they want to eat at Gramercy Tavern. And you've got an incredible pedigree, starting with trainings in Japan, in France, um, uh, Restaurant Daniel, um, uh, Blue Hill at Stone Barn. How did this start for you? And how did how did you make Gramercy into what it is? Well, it's a roundabout story that my own parents still have a hard time uh, understanding and fully accepting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I started working at Gramercy Tavern uh, in 2006 uh, and came into the organization um, <clears throat> in a in a way that is uh, not quite so common. Most of the folks uh, uh, have that that uh, moved into management positions in uh, Danny Meyer's restaurants and throughout the Union Square Hospitality Group came from within. There's quite a, a culture and it takes time and um, it's a culture of telling stories and sharing values uh, that really that really grows on, uh, on our folks. And stepping in from the outside was an extraordinary opportunity. I, I joke about it, but uh, it really was the uh, easiest and the hardest job that I've ever stepped into. Um, in the first few weeks, I think I increased the number of folks that I, I know in New York City tenfold just through the way that Danny scripted my entrance into the restaurant. And um, it was an amazing opportunity that was just unforeseen and the timing was right. Um, I never took it um, overly serious. And when asked, how will you ever fill the shoes of someone like Tom Colicchio? I hadn't really fully contemplated that because I really uh, kind of focused on the, um, you know, the essence of showing up to work and making sure that we have fun and that we challenge ourselves and try to hire people that um, have the courage to add something to our story and every day focus on uh, leaving their stations better than they found them. 
Mitchell, how much of this applies to the kind of the culinary community or the restaurant community? Is it a is it a luxury to be able to think about the things that that Mike is talking about? I've talked to some chefs and restaurateurs who say, you know, you know, it takes everything I've got to make sure the hot food's hot and the cold food's cold, and I can't think about anything else. But it sounds like one way to achieve that is to inspire the team the way I know that you inspire yours, Mike. I think it's seminally important. I think that as an industry, although the food aspect has evolved tremendously, and even the hospitality piece, the profession of restaurant, whether it's in the back or front of house, I think has some work. As an organization, we're trying to find ways to professionalize that experience for all sorts of important reasons, caring of each other and those of us in the industry is one of them, but also the impact that has on hospitality. And I think that knowing that the Union Square Hospitality Group, at least from the outside, exists from the writing, from the stories, from the people inside, from the success that you see when you experience it, um, I think gives us all something to aspire to in some ways. I'm sure on the inside it's a little different, but but I like I think Gramercy Tavern is almost a quintessentially American restaurant, not just because of the wonderful food or even the great hospitality, but because of the approach to the restaurant. I, in in at the Beard Foundation, but also in my own academic work and in my personal life, I, I think a lot about what American food is or what it might become or what we would want it to be. And I think there are some restaurants that have set, uh, have been sort of really important, pivotal restaurants in the American restaurant trajectory, the, the Four Seasons being one of them. The opening of the Four Seasons, I think in 1959, was, was a, a moment where America was like, okay, you want, you want ambitious? Here, here's, here's a restaurant. We're going to make it look like a bank. We're going to put it in the lobby of a giant building, and we're going to bring the greatest designers together. And whatever we forget, sometimes we have some of the original menus, because James Beard was involved with Mimi Sheridan creating the original mem- menus of that restaurant. They were all written in French. They all, like they, there was a it was a different moment in time. We we rewrite that history. But Gramercy Tavern, I would hold as from its moment from eleven. Well, it's now how old the restaurant itself? Well, twenty three years old. But I, in its evolution, it has become a definitive defining American restaurant. I think for all of those reasons, including the approach to how what work in that restaurant is like. It's not a French model that you just described. That's a an entrepreneurial American values based model that I think is really. The fact that it exists gives us something all to aspire to. When I think of the meals that I've had there, uh, and I've been lucky enough, I think, to have two or three lunches and two or three dinners, uh, I think of them as places where I lingered uh, more than any other restaurant. For some reason, just impressionistically, that's what pops into my mind, that it was just such a, you know, you just didn't want to get up from the table as opposed to other experiences where, yeah, the food is good and it's like time to move on. You just like, you just felt you were home. You know, it's as we're talking feeling. about it, I'm sort of settling into a chair there. You know, and I don't. Yeah. I, I, I literally walk by it practically every day, twice a day. I live, live and work on opposite sides of Gramercy Tavern. But you look in and you see this sort of warm glow and the the materials and the painting through the glass, and it's very, very comforting um, in a sophisticated way. Well, one of the things that we often talk about on Add Passion and Stir, and the reason we always have a chef and somebody who actually crosses over kind of into the policy world as well is the connection between food and so many other important issues, whether it has to do with the environment, whether it has to do with immigration, whether it has to do with hunger. Um, One of the really extraordinary things that the James Beard Foundation does, an enormous contribution to the public good is you actually train chefs through something you call boot camp for chefs to be advocates on these issues. Um, 
how's that working? Whose idea was that? It seems brilliant because I, I know from our work at Share Strength that chefs get a level of attention that uh, some of us kind of, you know, nonprofit advocates would never get. Uh, they're celebrities now. So it's a very powerful idea and you've executed it brilliantly. Um, how's it working and what are your priorities? Thanks for that. Um, uh, I will give credit to a new trustee who came from the nonprofit world uh, several years ago named Eric Kessler, who has uh, has been involved in policy in Washington yep. and various and Eric, administrations. Eric's been on, Ad Passion on Eric's been yes. on. Uh, he, we didn't know it at the time. He found his way onto our board intentionally and thought he had an idea that he had first seen in the music business when rock stars were rock stars and when they uh, began to become political and needed some training and some support to um, throw their celebrity onto really important causes. Um, and we've all, we all wondered how suddenly we were watching, you know, Bob Geldof concerts about particular issues. And it turns out it wasn't necessarily organic. There was actually a strategy and a vision there. So he taxed us with finding a way to engage with chefs who, as you noted, um, are the rock stars of, uh, of our moment now um, in many ways. And for whom we knew uh, conversations about food, whether they were about public health or sustainable agriculture or access or equity or hunger, which um, I think at Share Our Strength, you were so um, so ahead of the trend of engaging the people who know in some ways the most about food and the problem that I think is food-based. I mean, we wanted to find a way to help. We weren't coming into any of these conversations with our own new agenda or a different idea. We, we literally went on a listening tour around the country to see how could we help um, get chefs engaged. And it turned out that Chefs are uh, funny. You guys are a funny lot. Uh, you are you are working uh, long hours. Uh, you are dealing with your own microcosms. I mean, Mike Anthony is a bit of a uh, an outlier there with his vision and view of the world and his perception of what's going on. But but we needed to have chefs pick their heads up and see what how what they were doing fit into the larger communities. Not that they weren't always mindful of community, but but that there's a big world and they because they have this attention and uh, that brings with it some power and some responsibility that we wanted to help feed that, so to speak. So we took them away. We didn't know if it would work. We did a pilot. We took a group of 15 chefs from around the country away, um, chosen strategically. Some had been politically active. Others we felt would be if they knew how or were encouraged to think that way. Uh, and we just spent two and a half days hanging out, getting to know each other, talking a little bit about what advocacy is, what policy changes, how Washington works. The first boot camp uh, that I was able to attend it was uh, our first boot camp ever, <laughs> and held uh, in Wallen, Tennessee, at Blackberry Farm, a wonderful American resort, one of the most beautiful places on the planet. Um, the foothills of the Smoky Mountains. Uh, we had the pleasure of also being led by Sam Bell, who was uh, unfortunately has since passed. And um, so it was a magical moment of seeing him not only share his vision f uh, of food and family and uh, togetherness, uh, we, we had an opportunity to visit the gardens and um, benefited by bringing home seeds that were dated to specific dates in the 19th century. We encountered uh, how to embrace slaughtering an animal, which was really closing the circle for a lot of chefs who, you know, had even are, are well known for um, their style of 
uh, cooking whole animals and yet had not actually been participated in, in the process. And there was music involved and community, and it was incredible to hear everyone's voice. Uh, that group of people already kind of had a, a fairly uh, formed opinion about what their role in the community would be, but they've gone on to use the skills that they picked up uh, and and the the uh, connections, mm-hmm. the um, the network that was built by by being together in one place at one time to to share to ideas, right? So so that we ran with it. So we've had we just completed our thirteenth boot camp for policy and change. Um, we have two hundred alumni now, and all of them are active in their communities. Some are more interested in national politics, but as that dialogue has changed or that environment has changed, obviously the community level, um, local level, the regional level, tremendous work going on there across the spectrum of issues and policies. One thing I think that was really um, important was this idea that we could uh, grow a network, uh, support a, you know, it's never going to be one person, it's never going to be one restaurant, it's never going to be one city that, that leads to systemic change, but that the little bits that people do and supporting each other, sharing ideas can grow and grow and grow. It's been, it's a model that we are now trying to replicate with the issue of women in the food industry. As I was saying earlier, we just um, completed a, a boot camp of sorts, this training program where we're trying to push the needle about why only seven to 10, depending on the idea of percent of uh, chefs of independent restaurants are women, and yet 50% of graduates of cooking schools are, and all sorts of things that we feel as an organization we can help. Again, it's, it, for us, it comes from this, the cultivating leadership piece and diversity and, and, and infusing values is, uh, is what we want American food to be. But I do think that, that making sure that these sorts of issues, that politics are part of what American food is, and, and not just um, taste, uh, although not that taste is unimportant, um, but I think that that is a unique opportunity for us to lead in some of these areas of gastronomy writ large that I think is exciting. Um, and that I would say often, as the Beer Foundation has gotten more and more into this work, and the boot camps have begot, uh, begotten so many different programs for us that we can support um, uh, getting chefs' voices into various things. And for us, sometimes we ask ourselves, why are we sitting here in this conversation with um, with um, a- a- aquaculture engineers um, or even uh, f- global food security experts who are looking at nutrition data for developing countries? And then we realize we're the food people. We're the ones who remember or who get to say, wait a second, but this is food. People eat this. It's about culture. It's about um, identity. It's not just about numbers on a chart or measurements in a graph. It's actually about this beautiful cultural artifact that we all enjoy and are passionate about. And so we want to bring the voices of our chef community and our larger community into those conversations and remind people that some of the solutions come from thinking about these things as food and not as these other things we get caught up in in various areas. Yes. And then, Mike, how do you, uh, in addition to being a more effective advocate, and you're a very effective advocate, how do you bring some of this alive in your restaurant? I know that you've taken your your team to farms to see things. You've taken them out of the restaurant, which a lot of chefs and restaurateurs aren't able to do. How do you bring it alive for the people that you work with and the, and the customers you serve? Well, I'll give, I'll give you uh, an example that I think you both have experienced in just the last couple of weeks. Um, we grow. And so uh, one of the superstars that I've had a chance to work with over the last five years, Suzanne Cups, um, prepared a dish at the dinner that you attended. Our annual autumn harvest dinner for Share Our Strengths No Kid Hungry campaign was fantastic. And just uh, a week before, she participated in the Chef's Boot Camp. Our 13th and Boot Camp. <laughs> so, you know, Suzanne is, you know, a great story of uh, a young, talented, smart, 
a woman growing up in the food industry. She is adamant about um, talking about her point of view, um, her voice, her skills as a chef, not specifically a female chef, but a chef in 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 this industry. And she has something to say. She she has um, she has had a hand, a strong hand in in both uh, putting Gramercy Tavern on the map and. Now uh, she is the executive chef of Untitled Restaurant. Uh, at so at she, the Whitney. At the, uh, Whitney, the Museum. Whitney Museum. And I think her story is a good example of, again, if we go back to this notion of uh, where our goal is to grow great people, um, these experiences, tools, skills that they're picking up along the way, folks that work with us, um, are going on to do things that the senior leadership had never even imagined. Well, let me ask you a question. Um, and the the problem with uh, really great conversations like this one is time flies and we're, we're almost out of it. Um, but I wanted to ask you for the people who listen to Add Passion and Stir, many of them, they're passionate about food, but they're also activists. And uh, they're not all chefs. They don't all work in restaurants, but they do want to have a positive impact on what, what you've called the food culture, what some people might think of as the food system. I don't, I'm not even sure I know what that means or that I could articulate it. For people who are... Uh, passionate about the intersection of food and these other issues, what kind of advice do you have for them about the best way that they can make a difference, the best way they can engage, the best way they can be supportive uh, of the work that you're both doing? I think that in when it comes to food, we are all consumers. And I think that uh, two things, mindfulness and inquisitiveness, which go hand in hand, uh, really... Um, help push things to different places. And I, when I say that, I, we all eat junk sometimes. We all are on a, you know, have to feed our kids in 10 seconds. Whatever the thing is, you know, you need to be mindful of those decisions when you're making them. And I think that, that um, you also have to be accepting of the realities of, of life when it comes to food. But I think that by asking questions, we find this with chefs, with different programs that we do, with diners, where does this come from? Do you know, blah, blah, blah. You start to force change and transparency in a system that is otherwise opaque in so many ways. And the more questions that we can ask about where the food comes from, the more mindful we are about the decisions we make when we have that information. I think the, 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 there's a real power in that piece. And I think um, we have taken it for granted for a long time in the United States. And I think that I, that's what I see now is a very small but a meaningful step people can take. And those questions get to Chef Mike Anthony's ear? You'll hear them? Oh, yeah. That, I'm, that is uh, a big part of um, uh, the, I think, the future is restaurants that are, that are tuned in and listening carefully. Uh, the good news is, is that our, our day-to-day brings us in direct contact with, with those questions. But the, the questions you know, can be profound about where does this food come from? How is it produced? Um, who works in your restaurant? How are they paid? Where do they live? Um, they're very basic questions, but understanding what keeps our world together um, can be astounding when when you're when you're interested. And I think that uh, as the dining community becomes more and more and more sophisticated uh, and has access to information about um, the the quality of the food that we serve, uh, the techniques that are used to develop it, the interesting and you know sometimes inflamed. Uh, biographies and backgrounds of people in the restaurant world, it's all great as long as it pushes everyone collectively to ask more questions. We should expect more uh, of ourselves. I'm in the business of getting people into the restaurant business and then trying to keep them there. And what you both just said, though, is very could be very empowering to the average 
consumer to know that you know by being inquisitive, by asking the questions, by showing up that way, they really do have a power over this. I would like one caveat, if I may, which is that those questions have to be expansive. Um, that I actually have come to believe that while our producers have risen to world-class status, let's say, our consumers have a little work to do. And restaurants were historically in the United States and in the world in general, places where status and power were exerted because you could and could afford to and could demand and want. And actually, at this moment in time, I feel like um, the educated, sophisticated, inquisitive customer lets the experts, the chefs who are dealing with um, their business models, their sustainability issues, their values, have a little more control in that relationship so that they, so that we can balance out that equation. They can make the informed decisions and we can all benefit from the joy and celebration and deliciousness of what they do. Before we finish, uh, tell us what's next for each of you. More books, more restaurants, more boot camps. Um, yes, I know yes, you're both, yes. I mean, you're both so accomplished, but you're both also uh, ambitious in the best sense of the word, which is trying to, you know, have a greater impact on these issues we care about. Um, how about for you, Mitchell? So two years ago at the UN, as the millennial goals um, were of evolved, dissolved, really achieved, more or less, um, the 193 member countries agreed to the Sustainable Development Goals for 2030, and each country um, is holding itself to create its markers of success in development in a sustainable way. Many of them touch on food. Goal number two is the one that really calls it out. It's about alleviating global hunger, improving nutrition, and sustainability of the agricultural supply. Um, and finding an equi equitable solution um, that speak to the production and consumption of food. At the this year, um, Goalkeepers 2017 Gala that the Gates Foundation put on with Project Everyone, um, the these awards were given to people who were fighting in countries around the world to help um, their countries achieve these goals. What we thought the chefs could do was rather than just serve a delicious catered menu, which um, was being produced by uh, Great Performances, a local wonderful catering company with a farm, which makes them pretty unique, I think. Um, but we brought three chefs into that conversation to curate a menu that would speak to uh, the goals themselves. So... The, we reduced the amount of uh, animal protein to almost nothing. Um, so it was almost purely vegetarian, but quite honestly, um, some of the powers that be required there to be some uh, form of, of animal protein. Uh, we chose a sustainably wild-caught uh, bycatch fish uh, for that. Um, Dogfish was um, part of the menu. It, the funny part is... Be, when we started the conversation with the with great performances, the caterers they were afraid that uh, the the cost uh, the budget for this event was very tight, as everyone is. Blah blah blah. I said I think it's going to go down for you because if you were going to serve the salmon and chicken and whatever that you expected, this is not what we're, we're doing. Beans and millet. I, I, it's hard for me to imagine it's going to be more. And secondly. Everyone got really excited about it. The catering chefs were coming up with new ideas for the hors d'oeuvres. It was Everyone, a challenge. It was a challenge. And at the table last night at the event, it was the most exciting gala awards food you ever had. We served it all family style also to... to um, to uh, celebrate the notion of community and commensality. And you never saw people more interested in the food at one of these boring, drawn-out galas. I mean, it was it was a meaningful thing full of lots of celebrities, queen, kings and queens and heads of state, uh, but it would have been the same old, same old dinner, except for the fact that you were forced to pay attention in a really delicious and inspiring way. And when your audience is the Gates Foundation, that's not a, that's not a bad audience. Yeah, it's a good place to be. How about for you, Chef? 
Every day, listen, we're focused on on engaging. We uh, have gone through some uh, massive changes um, internally, uh, which have required us to double our efforts uh, down on the day-to-day, listening to our staff, um, articulating uh, our point of view and vision for the next year, year and a half. All of a sudden, our our world has gotten much more complex and fine-tuned. Gramercy Tavern has um, recently... Uh, initiated a no tipping policy and it's interesting and um, uh, has instilled a lot of pride in our team to see the the growing professional culture that that creates uh, the many questions that come from that both internally and from from our guests uh, but I see it working and I'm very proud that <clears throat> Danny and our uh, company as a whole has embraced this idea <clears throat> I think it's a historic moment in our industry so the equ- the equity issues involved, uh, really a turning point potentially. And continue to uh, create a more transparent uh, restaurant in which um, people from the outside can look in and say, now I understand how to be successful in this industry. I can see what growth looks like. I can map this out. I can make a smart uh, decision, personal decision. And and then maybe even um, more importantly, we're seeing that this is uh, – uh, a step in, in the right direction for uh, uh, more equality. Uh, one last question for each of you, since we've got two experts here, and I uh, want to get a little bit of inside scoop for our listeners. Uh, if you had to, uh, or were going to, uh, take each other to some place special to kind of show off something special about American food, and you could not take Chef Mike to uh, the James Beard Foundation House, and you uh, could not take... Uh, Mitchell to Gramercy or one of the Union Square restaurants, uh, where would you each take the other? Uh, I would go around the corner from here where I go often to a little restaurant called Attaboy. Attaboy. Yeah. It's a Korean couple. He has you know a, it, Mike? I do. You know no, it. Well, he yeah. has a high pedigree from two Michelin star rest background at a Korean restaurant that's great, Young Sick, and he and his wife open, and I can't remember either of their name right now, although I know it well, so I'm on the spot. JP, right, that's why there was no name. Um, JP, uh, and it is an incredibly contemporary American bistro in that it's a Korean, beautifully executed Korean fusion food. The price point almost doesn't make any sense at $36 for three beautifully executed courses. And it's an urban, funky, contemporary environment. Wow, and what a discovery. It's a unique place, and I, it's unfortunately no longer a discovery because I just keep talking about it everywhere. I just think it's great. I'm going to take you up on that. Uh, and I love the fact that you're pointing to a great influence in American cooking, uh, this, this wave of Korean um, cooks, chefs, uh, restaurant owners that are um, influencing uh, across the country the way we eat. Uh, we certainly have seen it within our own restaurant, definitely uh, happening uh, across the country. So that's super exciting. And where are you going to take Mitchell? Well, that's great. So since we've been focused on talking um, uh, about Portland, I, I dined in a restaurant for the first time there that uh, I don't know if you have been to uh, called Tusk. Uh, and it was uh, helmed and owned by uh, a gentleman who has experience working here in New York City and has created a lovely restaurant that feels entirely contemporary and is very deeply rooted to the uh, surrounding agric- agriculture in his region. And I think it's an inspiration for, um, for all young in- independent restaurants that are, that are popping up around the country today. Sounds fabulous. Attaboy in New York, Tusk, and Portland, Oregon. We're very lucky. 
to be living and eating in this time. <laughs> Can't say it better. Uh, I want to thank you both so much for joining us on Ad Passion and Stir. I also want to thank you for just being so thoughtful, so passionate, so caring about uh, food and our food culture and how food develops and how it affects all of us. You're both just extraordinary leaders. Mitchell Davis, Executive Vice President of the James Beard Foundation. Really great to have you here. It's great to be here. Thank you. Um, and Chef Mike Anthony from Gramercy Tavern and Untitled and the Union Square Hospitality Group. Um, thanks for being here. Thanks for being such a champion for Share Strength's work. Nice chatting with you. Great. Thank you, guys. Ad Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Ad Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Ad Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.